This is the Big Issues Better Pod. Acting today for a better tomorrow. In season one of Better Pod, we've challenged poverty and inequality, homelessness, institutional misogyny, and conspiracy theories. We've discovered the perils of social media, the forces behind gun control in America, and the problems with sex education in UK schools. In this final episode, we take a look back at the best moments from series one, and we finish up by talking through the actions we'll all be taking to make tomorrow better. Hopefully you'll find some tips in there too. I'm Laura Kelly, Future Generations Editor at The Big Issue. I lead a team of exciting young journalists from backgrounds that are traditionally underrepresented in the media. Here are Sophie, Kat and Jade's favourite parts of Better Pod Series 1. Hi, I'm Sophie Dmitrievich and here's my top clips from this season's Better Pod. For one of my first podcasts, I spoke to author and Channel 4 journalist Simeon Brown. We touched on a lot of interesting topics to do with social media in his book, Get Rich or Lie Trying. But I guess I kind of really wanted to pick out this one story where he spoke to a young man who was paid to be racially abused. I felt like this was the one that shocked me the most and wanted to see his own views on it and to show our listeners how dangerous social media could be for people who are more vulnerable in society. And I guess the kind of wide implications of it. Some of the stories you uncovered are really hard to read. Were there moments during your investigation when you were shocked? Oh, what what did you find particularly hard to read? It was quite a few, actually. I think mainly the stories of like the plastic surgeries. Which ones for you were like the hardest? A lot of the stories, I think they touch on a lot of ethical fault lines. Some engage, some some do touch on like outright fraud and legal behaviour. But start, a lot of it is like the ethics of work and the ethics of the nature of what, what we're doing. So, for example, I interviewed a man in California who at one point he'd been homeless he'd been down and out he'd been doing what he described as dead-end jobs and then his life had basically changed when he'd effectively joined an alt-right kind of leaning live streaming community and they would effectively pay him to racially abuse him that's how he could generate money from that particular live streaming audience I think some readers want a book which is going to be more not necessarily adversarial but advocating a very particular moral approach. And I think that my book was more trying to present these things and say, okay, so you as a reader, like, what do you make of this? What are you cool with this? What, how, how does it make you feel? What does it tell us about kind of work? Sophia Smith-Galo is a popular content creator and journalist who I've been following for quite some time. She's all over my For You page on TikTok with over 400,000 followers. And she's really passionate about making sex ed better. She does it in a way that speaks to me as part of the younger generation. One of the questions I asked her about was the topic of painful sex, as it's something me and my friends talk about often. And here's her talking about how we should get rid of the taboo. A lot of the time when I talk about sex, it's with my friends. And I guess some of the conversations that we have, we kind of talk about how we struggle with having sex comfortably and kind of talk about the pain associated with sex. And I feel like sometimes in this generation, as women, we're kind of encouraged to have sex to please men rather than ourselves. So just kind of wondering, what are some ways that we can encourage young girls to be more open about their sex life and that really it's kind of normal to enjoy it? That is a myth that needs to be debunked when young people are still in educational settings and you have their attention in a classroom. I was never, no one ever told me sex shouldn't be painful. In fact, whenever I tried to seek out information, I was, it was often reiterated that, oh, pain during sex is fine. 
that information can be far more nuanced. It can be. So pain during sex is more common than you'd think. About one in 10 British women experience it. But just because something is common doesn't mean it's normal or right. Um, and it's often the case that people will be experiencing pain because they haven't been aroused enough or they might be feeling a bit of anxiety. Um, we're still really rubbish at like bringing mental health conversations into talking about sex. Sexism is such a broad topic to cover, but my colleague Eliza did a great job of interviewing Laura Bates. She's the founder of the Everyday Sexism Project and listening to what she said, I was left feeling angry. Sarah Everard's murder and the police response to her vigil is an example of an institution who don't respect women's rights. And Laura says it needs root and branch reform. It's hard to disagree. So the big question that I want to ask is that you mentioned in the book um, sort of these like potentially systemic fixes that are sitting there ignored and unused. If you could pick one that we could enact today, what would that be? Oh gosh, there are so many. Um, I mean, I think for me, perhaps the one that's at the heart of it all at the moment is real root and branch reform of policing. Because I really believe that what we've seen in the last two years is evidence of institutional misogyny, institutional racism within the police force. Um, you, you can't deny it when you look at the statistics. We have been repeatedly fobbed off and told that Wayne Cousins was a bad apple, that he was an aberration, that no one could have seen it coming. But the truth is that his colleagues nicknamed him the rapist, that actually he'd been three times reported for indecent exposure and somehow that hadn't been taken seriously enough to take him off duty. And the further you look into it, whether you look at the report recently into atrocities going on at Charing Cross Police Station with racism and misogyny and homophobia, but then you discover that nine out of those 14 officers involved in that report are still serving. Or even bigger statistics that 2,000 Met Police officers have been accused of sexual misconduct in a four-year period to 2020 alone. It's obviously a system issue. And not acknowledging that means that the culture within that system won't change. And you can't, in my view, detach that from the fact that the system is completely failing women and survivors of sexual violence. The fact that 1.4% of rapes reported to the police results in a charge or summons. And if you look at the number of rapes that are wrongly no-crimed by police, or if you look at the evidence of Charing Cross and you realise that those officers were sending each other messages saying things like... Um, um, your missus loves it if you slap them around. They're biologically programmed to love that stuff. You start to think this isn't just one or two bad apples. This is a system problem. So for me, it would be absolute root and branch reform of that system. I'm Katerina Sivitinidis, and here are my favourite moments from Better Pod Season 1. As a working class journalist from Glasgow, speaking to Darren McGarvey meant a lot to me. Growing up working class like me, Darren has become a very successful journalist, a field that usually lacks opportunities for those like me in working class backgrounds. We recorded this podcast on a walk in Glasgow. This part was outside a newsagent in Partick. I asked Darren about how working class people can become more prominent in the media and Darren does a great job in explaining to me the reasons for such huge social gaps in the world of journalism. We've now moved over to a newsagent that's across the road from the Partick Job Centre. We can see a lot of newspapers on the front. Now one thing that you mentioned in your book is that more than half of the UK's journalists are from privately educated backgrounds and me as a working class journalist completely agree 
that it's really hard industry to break into unless you're from a privileged background. Do you think there's more space in the media for working class journalists? It's complicated because it's an industry that's currently in decline due to the uh, digital revolution and everything moving online and some publications and some uh, companies have the resources to navigate that successfully you know the big news conglomerates um, and others have struggled and so they're downsized and assets stripped and you know the jobs just go if you're looking at the journalism not from a business standpoint though but you're looking at it from a, a journalistic point of view an ethical point of view an information ecosystem point of view there is a strong argument that one of the reasons the discussion about social inequality in Britain has become so skewed is partly because that lack of proximity that a lot of people who are privately educated have to issues like addiction, poverty, homelessness. And so uh, subconsciously those people draw from a kind of curdled well of assumption that's kind of drilled into them through the institutions that they engage with as they rise up the rungs of the ladder from their household to school to university to the, the profession and that that trajectory is pretty much unbroken for a lot of them in fact some of their schools have been selected by their parents because they function as pipelines directly into these industries and they're also very highly networked uh, and what i mean by that is that the reason a person like boris johnson can survive being mediocre as a leader even less, uh, even less exceptional just as a man is, is because of how highly networked he is. He has powerful friends in every level of society. And so this, this, this kind of uh, lubricates, <laughs> lubricates his uh, being able to just squeeze himself through every scrape that he encounters. So you've got that side of the issue around journalism. The question then is, are there editors out there or proprietors out there who are interested in really getting into the weeds of what social inequality is about? Because if they are, then they can actively encourage people to apply for jobs who come from those kind of backgrounds. There are some good examples out there of, of, of class being taken into consideration within the umbrella of diversity. But unfortunately, the diversity agenda for some papers just means racial, gender, ethnic, religious, sexual diversity, and that is important. That is really important, but what you find is it's a middle-class black person, it's a middle-class woman, it's a middle-class, and that can sound like a snidey thing to say, but it's true. I mean, if you're, if you're just looking at the demographics, that's, that's a fact, and it's the same in Parliament as well. Conspiracy theories are all over the internet. You might think they're just silly. QAnon, however, is a right-wing theory that Donald Trump is fighting a secret war against child abuse and elites. It was actually a main factor in the storming of the US Capitol. Journalist and author John Elledge has investigated the history of conspiracy theories and why people actually fall for them. Along with Tom Phillips, he's written Conspiracy, a history of bollocks theories and how not to fall for them. John argues that anyone, no matter what part of the political spectrum you're on, can fall for conspiracies. Here's his advice on how you can avoid falling down that rabbit hole. I think a useful thing you can do in your own life is just kind of like Check your check your prejudices. Like if, if you agree with something because it appeals to your existing biases, I think it is kind of good to look at it extra carefully because you are more likely to just kind of accept information that fits with what you already think. 
I also think it is probably healthy to not start thinking, not start imagining yourself to be like the rational person in a conversation, um, because I think that can be that can be kind of quite a poisonous attitude <laughs> to imagine that unlike the people to your left or your right, you uniquely are rational and sensible. And I've seen a number of people who who started from that position veer off into all sorts of insane beliefs. So I think that's that's a sensible thing to do. For the first ever episode of Better Pod, I spoke to Sophie Howe. Wales' first Future Generations Commissioner. Growing up surrounded by inequality, Sophie wanted to make a difference for future generations, dealing with issues like poverty and climate change. She has started a global movement to act today for a better tomorrow. Here she tells us how. The role was set up um, when the Welsh, um, the Welsh Parliament, the Senate, passed this law, the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act. Um, and it does a number of things. So I suppose the, the most important thing is that it places this legal duty on all of our main institutions in Wales, so like our councils, our health boards, our fire and rescue services, things like that, our public services and the Welsh Government itself to demonstrate how when they're taking decisions and they take decisions in a way which meet today's needs without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. And so that's how that role um, came about. And it's first in the world, um, which is very exciting. I think, you know, can be a bit lonely, you know, just, you know, hanging out on my own in the world, being the only commissioner. But there are there are others coming now. There's one in Gibraltar. Um, there's going to be one in Scotland soon. If we can get this UK bill through that is being led by um, by you guys and, and, and John Bird in the House of Lords, um, then that would be absolutely huge as well. Coming up, how do your fashion choices affect people and planet? Did you know you can get the Big Issues award-winning journalism through your door every week? As a Better Pod listener, you can sign up to get a four-week subscription to the best in news, politics and culture for just £12. And we'll even throw in a stylish tote bag for free. Go to bigissue.com bigpod to find out more. I'm Jade Kabaku, part of the Future Generations team. These are my best bits from Better Pod. I'm a really big fan of Love Island. I watched all the seasons. One thing I don't really like, though, is that a lot of ex-islanders, once they leave the show, are very eager to sign fast fashion deals. And what that does is it just promotes this throwaway mentality of clothing. However, Brett Daniland, who is an ex-Love Island contestant, did the opposite. Once he left the show, he would he distanced himself from fast fashion deals and used his social media platform to expose their unethical practices. In this clip, Brett talks about the negative impact that fast fashion has on the environment and on people. Um, I think there's there's two like conversations they're they're intertwined, but there's two conversations I kind of have. And one is the effects on the planet and how we can't sustain this amount of this amount of waste, this amount of production, this amount of use of fossil fuels, um, and all of the things that contribute to global warming and climate change. We're seeing really turbulent weather at the moment in England. And people say, oh yeah, the weather's just crazy. I'm like, think about why the weather is crazy. What do you think it is that's causing it? Um, And the other one is about people. When you think of the fast fashion garments, when you get one and you turn it inside out and have a look at it, um, and you think, how is it possible that I bought this for six pounds? And who's been paid to make it? Um, and what are, what are their what's their situation? Um, there's some there's some really good documentaries. One is a few years old now from Unreported World on um, the Chitturum River in Indonesia, and um, 
the people who live on this river work at the textile factories that make all the clothes that we wear and they are actively polluting their own water source they're giving their babies rashes because it's the only water that they have um, lots and lots of health conditions and again they're not being paid fair living wages they don't have a good quality of life all for for the one thing that you they can make you a six pound shirt or six pound dress so there's a people conversation and an environment conversation which are which are used to try and like get people um, you know, to care. That's the bottom line is we just have to make people care. March for Lives is an organisation formed in 2018 in the wake of the massacre at Stoneman Douglas High School, where unfortunately 17 people died. As a result of this tragedy, Ariel Hobbs joined March for Lives at just 20 years old to campaign against the gun violence happening in America. In this clip, I asked Ariel about the importance of having black voices heard because although the black community is the most affected by gun violence, the voices are either ignored or just not taken seriously. Ariel Hobbs told us how black women can get their voices heard despite the barriers stacked against us. I've seen you talked about how hard it is for a black woman to um, get a seat at the table. So how important is it for much for our lives to have a diverse organization it is key you can't truly talk about and achieve our ultimate goal which is ending the epidemic of gun violence without including the communities that are predominantly impacted by gun violence um gun violence is not all mass shootings it is not mass shootings it is gun mass shootings do not make up the entirety of gun violence you have inter-community gun violence, you have suicide, you have domestic violence, you have friendly fire, you have all those things. But you know, the most prevalent form of gun violence in the US is everyday gun violence, is that inter-community gun violence. And unfortunately that happens in communities, that happens predominantly in communities of color. And so when you talk about ending gun violence and you talk about you know wanting to get down to the root causes of what makes gun violence, what, what creates an environment, an environment for gun violence and parsing away some of those layers and really getting to the meat and the bones of it all um you have to include those who are from those communities can you tell our listeners about some barriers preventing um people of color from getting their voices heard and do you have any advice on how we can make our voices heard too i would say the biggest barrier is white supremacy <laughs> um white supremacy sucks and it infects every single aspect of life um and so you know using the examples of folks in chicago um one of our board members one of our youth board members on our board right now is trayvon bosley he's from chicago he has lost his brother to gun violence and he and his friends and the organizations that he works with the peace warriors and other organizations like good kids mad city in chicago have been screaming from the rooftops for years we need something done hey look at us pay attention to us it's going on here this is a serious issue hello 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 i have met organizers some of our elders that have been organizing that have been a part of this gv the gun violence prevention space for 30 years saying the exact same things that we are saying now yet because they do not come from the ideal community or they do not look a certain way 
you know, or they don't speak a certain way or their names sound different. They're not taken, you know, they're not taken seriously. They're pushed off to the side and, you know, it's written off as, oh, well, that's a black thing. That's, that's their community. You know, that's a flaw within them. You know, not that this is a flaw within society. Oh, that's their thing. That has nothing to do with me. But a way to overcome that barrier is uh, social media and phones. Um, because now you do not have to rely on other people to get your story out there. You can put your story out there all by yourself. And if you create a following and get a community behind you, then you help push those, y'all help push those stories out. That way you can not get your voices heard. So I say, take it upon yourself. Um, find folks that have similar stories and that are in community. And even if it's just tweeting about your story, making a Snapchat video, doing Instagram posts, making a TikTok, really utilize social media because as much as people want to say negative in the negative impacts that social media has had, it is really giving people a, 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 level of self-determination of like, I determine how my story comes out now. You know, I determine what people hear about me. And so if you have something to say, you now have a way to put it out there without, you know, having to wait for it to get picked up by a news channel or a radio station or a celebrity or whoever, like you can push that out yourself. And that's actually how us as an organization march. We have found so many of our great organizers from all across the country because they just put their stories out there and we find them and we're like, Hey, want to come join? You know, what can we do to help support? You know? And so, and by doing that, then you connect, 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 and you continue to empower and uplift people. So social media is probably the biggest thing and utilizing social media to tell your story is really the, my biggest piece of advice for people of color. Our final clip in this special highlights edition of Better Pod comes from actor and now campaigner Will Poulter. Will's about to appear in the new Guardians of the Galaxy film, so his star's only on the rise. But before entering the Marvel Universe, he joined us to talk about rising inequality in the UK. Will is a high-profile supporter of Turn To Us, a charity that fights UK poverty. Here, he tells us why. I mean, I think I can start to get some idea of why you want to support <laughs> Turn To Us and... Um, and you've spoken really eloquently about the problems there, but mm. why this charity? I mean, you know, the, why did these people really inspire you? Well, I think, um, first of all, you know, uh, the, the overarching, I think, theme of their work, as you touched upon, Anita, is that, you know, they're trying to help people. They're trying to help people who are more than deserving of help, you know, and they're trying to address unfairness and inequality. And so it's really hard to argue with that as a cause. You know, I think that is just a really kind of honourable, righteous cause. Um, secondly, you know, my family will work in the health sector. So like Anita, you know, a lot of my family members work in the NHS and um, a lot of my family members, myself included, have struggled with mental health. And I think you can't talk about these sort of, um, the, the, the stress and the emotional impact, as you touched upon Anita, of financial insecurity without considering its overlap with, with mental health. Um, you know, it's reported that uh, half of people who are in problem debt have also been diagnosed with a mental health issue. So that's a really important thing to acknowledge as well. And, you know, even in my relatively privileged position, having not faced financial insecurity, you know, not having that same lived experience, I struggle with my mental health. So I can only imagine how much harder I would have found the challenge of managing my mental health if I didn't know where my next meal was coming from. Or like Anita, if I was working every hour that was available to me and I was still unable to, you know, 
get those basics for my home. Or, or you know, if I was in a position where I was responsible for a child who I had to feed, you know? So these sorts of things, I think, not only kind of reinforce in my mind just, just how fortunate I am, but, but also critically, how many people, how many millions of people are facing a very, very different set of challenges. Do you mind if I ask you what, what um, challenges you face with your own mental health? Yeah, so I was, I was diagnosed in my teens with depression and generalised anxiety disorder and also OCD um, and uh, still got them, unfortunately. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm very fortunate that I, I've been able to kind of um, uh, receive therapy and, and you know, um, treatment for that. And it's kind of an ongoing journey and, and something that, you know, I'm fortunate that I have kind of familial support around and a lot of un understanding around it. Um, but what it's also done is sort of, I think, uh, you know, increased my understanding or my awareness of, of how that affects other people and how, you know, I think financial insecurity, which I've been protected from through privilege, actually, you know, the, the, the relationship between financial insecurity and mental health is it's a sort of cycle. It's, it's, it's a self-perpetuating issue. And, you know, the stress of financial insecurity, I think, forces someone into, um, you know, suffering men certain mental health issues and certain mental health issues, of course, impact, you know, uh, the degree to which someone is able to kind of fight against financial insecurity. And, and that's why support is so, so needed. And I think that's why services like Turn to Us, which provide kind of practical advice and, you know, actionable responses that you know, provide grants that you don't need to pay back as well. You know, this is key because I think it accounts for, as best as they're able, it accounts for where the system as it currently stands doesn't actually adequately support people. Every week on BetterPod, we've finished by asking our guests to name one thing that our listeners can do today to make tomorrow better. I thought it'd be nice to hear how that has changed us as a team. So Sophie, Jade and I are here at the moment and we're going to talk about what we've all taken away from that experience. For you two, what do you think were the most important actions that we can take from our time in BetterPod? Well, for me, I think the most important thing to do is just make small adjustments in your lifestyle, whether that's just, you know, recycling more, donating to charities, it's really those small actions that do make a big difference. Um, yeah, I definitely agree. And I also think that giving people a platform to talk about things I wouldn't really hear about in mainstream media and starting those interesting discussions was a really important step forward for the future and starting a new generation of thinkers as well. That's really interesting you say that about a new generation of thinkers. I think that that, for me, was one of the most exciting things about working with all of you on BetterPod was your voices are voices we don't necessarily always hear right so to to hear from you and to be um guided by the topics that you wanted to talk about and the big issues that you see for our future i think it's a it, it's, it's an important set of conversations for people to listen to yeah because as a black woman there's topics that are very important for me to speak on and i'm just happy that i got the opportunity to speak on topics that matters to me yeah I thought you did a great job in that particularly when we were talking about gun violence in America and your interview with Ariel really moved me Jade whenever you were talking to her because you were both young black women talking about how you can make your your voices heard yeah and I liked the fact that Ariel gave like good advice on how 
we can get our voices heard. And it's just by using social media to share our stories. I thought that was a good advice. Um, I guess kind of linking onto that, one of my favorite people who I spoke to was Alison Peter, who kind of delved into the creative side of the conversations that we had, which I feel like, especially in this environment, I know that since I was growing up, being creative and kind of exploring a creative career was never something that was encouraged. It was kind of more like English, maths, science-based. So I found that conversation to be really important to me. Yeah, so we talked to Alison Peter about design, mm-hmm. right? So that, that was back um, a, a few episodes ago. We talked to them about how kind of design is so important to imagining what the future looks like and to solving the homelessness crisis and solving so many other big problems that we face for the future. Mm-hmm. I also enjoyed how they kind of spoke about how design can also help big issues at hand, which I feel like was something or is something that is ignored in media and how these small creative things that seem so little to everyone else can actually create a bigger impact on everything. Was there any of the examples that you liked from them? Um, I think when Peter spoke about his creation of the hostel, I found that to be really inspiring and motivating how throughout each of his concepts, there was always the thought of the people in the background and it wasn't just like a creative thing or, oh, I want this to look pretty. He also thought about the functionality of it all. Yeah, so it was about building community for him, wasn't it? Mm, And I think that's a really important thing as well, just building community, bringing people together. And so for both of you, in your own life, is there anything that you're now doing differently or that you have changed due to your time in Better Pot or that you've changed because of the people that we've spoken to? I would definitely say I'm more confident in speaking to people and being able to ask those hard-hitting questions and being able to have that voice that I feel like is important because I feel like now that I've spoken to all these individuals, I feel a certain sense of power in that that I can take away and bring that when bringing to conversations with other people so do you think that power will help does that help you act today for a better tomorrow oh yeah definitely I start those conversations with friends and I feel like even those little things can spark bigger things in society absolutely I couldn't agree more and for me I guess just speaking to these huge change makers sometimes I have to admit at first I did feel a bit inadequate because I was thinking to myself that I could never do these big changes that they're making in society but what they all made me realize that we all have power to make a change we just need to as Sophie said start conversations even with our friends and family and that could really make a difference. Thanks for listening to Better Pod. If you'd like to support us, please subscribe, leave a review and tell your friends. We're relying on word of mouth to bring people into our conversation and to help us all discover how we can act today for a better tomorrow. You can keep up with all the Big Issues reporting at BigIssue.com, where you can also discover how to find your local vendor.